Okay, look in James 2.14. Now, I'm not trying to be um, overdramatic here. And I'm not trying to say something provocative in order to lock your attention into me for the next 35 minutes. That's not my goal right now. But I am going to say this is probably one of the most controversial passages in the entire Bible. I mean, controversial if you take women preachers out and spiritual gifts out. If you take tongues out of the picture, this, this moves up the list a little bit more. But this is one of the most controversial passages in the Bible. Some theologians in the past and even some theologians today have wanted to throw this entire book right out of the Bible because of this passage today, largely, right? Just get rid of it. Martin Luther, way back in the earlier part of his ministry, called the book of James an epistle of straw because it never, in his opinion, connected to the teachings of Paul. In his opinion, it did not do a very good job of leading to Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus' name is only in this entire book twice. Last week was the second and the last time you'll see it. And this is the brother of Jesus teaching it, right? This is the brother of Jesus writing it. So people have really struggled in the past. In fact, when Martin Luther did his translation of the Bible, he took Revelation, Jude, James, and he stuck them in the very end and didn't even put page numbers on them. <laughs> he struggled. He said, hey, if we're going to honor what Paul says, we can't, we can't honor what James is saying. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through this passage with you. And what I'd like is for you to read through and hunt. Hunt down what makes it so controversial. Let's see if you can find it. Okay? Deal? Starting in verse 14, it says this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works, but you show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Did you catch it? Did anyone catch the controversy? Yell it out. Just yell out the verse number or the phrase. What? What? Huh? Yeah, okay. It is the infamous verse 24. The infamous verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now listen, for two years, as the history of our church, we have been preaching for two years that we are justified by grace alone, totally apart from works. That's what we've been teaching. I hope you've noticed that. 
For two years, we've been teaching that even in an attempt to please God and secure more favor from Him than what He's already giving you in the cross, even that attempt in God's eyes is garbage. Total and utter garbage. Because in God's eyes, the only works and deeds that actually ever mattered were the ones that Jesus did on the cross. That's the only thing that registered. And if we try to do other things in order to get more favor and more blessing from God, then that is equivalent, and you've heard me say this before, it's equivalent to us hanging ourselves on a cross right next to Jesus and saying, hey, thanks for what you did, but it wasn't quite strong enough, so I'm going to go ahead and pick up where you left off. That's why it's a stench before God, because his son was a beautiful sacrifice that was full and complete and not lacking. So on the surface, on the surface, James seems to disagree with Paul. And maybe us. Doesn't it look like that? In fact, I'm going to put up a verse comparison. Look at this. This is Paul in Romans 3.28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Look at James. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. They switched it. Does it look like they're disagreeing with each other or is it just me? Does it look like they're confused? Like maybe they'd be arguing if they were in the same room? I'll tell you, historically, historically there's been a big rift here. A big rift that started back when this was written all the way to today. Today we still see two camps. Two camps, and they gather around the question of this. Does God save us by our faith alone, by his grace, or do we need to staple works and deeds to it to make it effective? Which one is the case? Which one is real faith? I mean, which one is saving faith? Right? That's the question. There's two different kinds of theology on this. I'm not going to bore you with it. I'm going to shotgun it, and I'm going to get out of it. One of these theologies is called lordship theology. All right? Some of you have heard this before. Some of you understand that term. All lordship theology teaches is that deeds and works, they actually chase after your salvation. That yes, God does bring his grace. He levels you with his grace. Obliterates you with his grace. But because that grace is so deep and so effective that it works itself out and proves itself out by works and deeds. Right? So the signature of your salvation, under lordship theology, the signature of your salvation are your works and your deeds. But then you have free grace theology. That's another camp. They look at each other. Free grace theology says that we don't need any deeds or any works at all. All we need to do is believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and God's promise takes care of the rest. That works are so far from this that before and after they have no bearing. Not only that, the, the signature of salvation is not your works and deeds. It's my confession and God's promise. You see, they, they both sound kind of good, don't they? I mean, can you see how they compete with each other a little bit? I mean, here's, here's a, a scenario. You have a guy, a dude. We'll use a dude. A dude, he's got some sin. I don't know what it would be. You fill in the blank. But he's just not really willing to let go of it. In fact, you got say he's embracing it. He's holding on to it. He's guarding it. He's protecting it. And he's very happy in it. No intention of changing. The Lordship, well, I'll just say the free grace theologian would say it doesn't really matter. Don't look at his performance. It's about Jesus' performance. And he did confess when he was in high school at a church camp 
that Jesus was going to be Lord over his life and that he did believe in Jesus as the Son of God. And because he did confess that, and the Bible is true, God's promise sweeps in, he's saved. And then lordship theology says, well, not so fast. Because if he was saved, truly saved, and grace anchored down inside of him, then he would be compelled to do the works and the deeds that are beautiful to God and glorify God and run away from the deeds that are not glorifying God. So maybe he's not. So they argue. You know, in the last 18 months, this has become a very um, contemporary argument. It's been refueled. Alan Chambers, he is the president of Exodus International. It's, a, it's been a great ministry in the past. I think it's out of Central Florida. I think it's out of Orlando. And it's a ministry that deals with those who struggle with same-sex attraction. He's done a very good job. The ministry's blown up. It's gotten huge. I meet people all the time that have benefited from that ministry, that have worked for that ministry. He has now come out in the last 18 months, and he has said that he believes that people can willfully engage and embrace that sin and still be true Christians because at one point in the time in their life, they said that they believed in God. That's what he says. That they can willfully engage and embrace that lifestyle and still be Christians because at least they confess with their mouth that Jesus is the Son of God. So as you can expect, theologians, professors, authors, pastors all over the country have asked for him to step down. It's right now. It's a raging debate. I'd like to submit that I don't need that it needs to be, though. I don't think it needs to be such a raging debate because Paul and James never disagreed. They were lockstep with each other the whole time. There is no controversy. There's no contradiction right? It looks like there is, though. You have to remember, they're talking to two different crowds in two different ways, but they are in total agreement. James was talking to people who say they love Jesus. Today, this is what we're going to look at. James is talking to people who say they love Jesus, right? But they were leaning on their words only as that which justified them before God. Paul was talking to a totally different group who also said they loved Jesus, but they weren't leaning on their words. They were leaning on their what? Works and deeds. Two different crowds, two different messages. They're preaching the same gospel, though. And this is what, this is what Paul says. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to keep sinning because grace has come to us? May it never be. Are you kidding? By no means. How can we do this? How can we, who have died, still live to sin? Well, now he's starting to sound a little bit like James, isn't he? He's repeating the same thing. Because again, they're in total agreement. I'm going to read a passage to you, and it's going to be up on the screen, and I've got it set up as a comparison, all right? Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. This is focusing on grace. This is Paul, same guy. For by grace you have been saved, and y'all have heard this a million times, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works. Not a result of works, so that no one can boast. But then he goes on and says this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. Good works. Paul is saying that that's why grace visited us, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here Paul is saying that, yes, grace alone rescues you. It's by grace. You're not strong enough, smart enough, wise enough, holy enough, disciplined enough. It's by God's grace. Your works weren't even in the picture. You couldn't even do it. It's by grace. But we are recreated for good works. 
This is what William Barclay says on this. He is really helpful to me. If you can understand this quote, it'll unlock it all for, for some of you. We are not saved by deeds. We are saved for deeds. He says this. These are the twin truths of the Christian life. And Paul's whole emphasis is on the first truth, and James' whole emphasis is on the second truth. But again, they're in agreement. They're preaching the same gospel. This is why Martin Luther, later on in his life, he said it is by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. So what does this mean for us? What does it mean? It means that our lives are to be so peppered, so fluent, with good, godly, Christ-imaging deeds and works and effort and rhythms that there is something so obvious in our life that God has done that it provokes a question from the culture that says, why? Why do you do that? What makes you different? Right? That's what our lives are supposed to look like. I mean, what makes us different, what makes God's church different from the culture is not necessarily always what we say, but it should always be what we do. It should always be what we do. We're a city on a hill. <laughs> We're an observable people amidst a culture that does not belong to us. We're foreigners. We're aliens. We're travelers. We're sojourners. We're exiled to be seen, to be on display for all people. Observable. What are they watching? Are they watching our words? I mean, yes, they are. But don't make any mistake. They're watching your deeds. They're watching what you do. They're watching what I do. I mean, if our works don't distinguish us, our words don't have any chance. If my actions don't distinguish anything, my words stand no chance. I mean, listen, even if you're not running the race really well, even if you're like limping, right, waddling, even if you're struggling, there should be something markedly different between your former life and your new life if you're a Christian. I mean, you should be dealing with, I don't know, your failures differently. It should look different. You should be mourning your losses differently. You should be handling your crises differently. You should be anchoring your confidence differently. You should be doing fellowship differently than you did. You should celebrate your wins differently than you did. Your worship should look different. How you handle your time should look different. How you handle your finances and your talents, it should all look different. Listen, how your sin comes and how you engage your sin, that should look different. Even if you're not doing this incredible job, there should be a marketable difference. Well, Luke, Luke, then what is James talking about whenever he says, what kind of faith is that? Is that a saving faith? He's talking about a different faith. He's saying, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but, does have, but has no works? Can that faith save him? What does that mean? What is that faith? What is that? What kind of faith is it that is big of mouth and short of arm? Right? I mean, James is asking a rhetorical question here. That's the style of argument he's chosen. Right? It's called a diatribe. The question responds with the answer, no. No. That faith cannot save him. That faith cannot save him. But Luke, then what does it look like when someone says they're a Christian, but they're not? What does that look like? Where do you draw the line? Is it me? Is it my wife? Is it my husband? I was talking to Paula about this the other day, and she said, this is my joke. You can use it up there, though. I bet there's sometimes you've wondered if I was a Christian. 
thought, no, babe, I always thought you were a Christian. But there was about one year where I started wondering, is she a Christian? No, I'm just playing. But I mean, we ask ourselves the question, where is the line? Where does it drop? Where is that plumb line? I mean, I want you to imagine, James wrote this letter, and he sent it out to all these churches spread out all over Palestine. Someone's reading that letter. This was orated. This was read to a group of people, probably a little bit smaller than this crowd, maybe like half the size, right? It could have been in a room, I don't know, a cool theater, a Zumba class, I don't know where, but there were people gathered around looking at each other while someone was reading this letter, and they had to have thought in their minds the same thing you're thinking. Is that me? Is that my neighbor? Is that the person sitting behind me? You know, I always thought that dude's always got a big mouth, but I never see him showing up early. That dude's always got a big mouth. What, what, what he is and Jesus that and gospel this, but man, he doesn't look like a Christian. We all, I mean, nothing really changes. Imagine being in that place. That's what he's talking about. So I've come up with two groups of people, and this is risky. I've come up with two groups of people that I think he might be talking about. Okay, so give me some grace here. I think one group are just people that say the shell of the right thing, but they have no desire, no sense of abandon, no dependence, no trust, no repentance, and no trail back to God. But they say the right thing. They use words like gospel, community, mission, missionary, missional, communal, incarnational. They use all the words, new and old. And it even looks like it on the front, just by the way they sound. It looks like they could be a Christian, right? But listen, this is something wise, I think, that God put in this passage for us. James says, you believe that God is one? Good for you. But even the devil does. And he's scared of that, right? That's what he says. What does that mean, that phrase, God is one? It's a very precious phrase to the Jews. It's called the Shema something they said all the time. They said daily. The Shema is something that was, you could call it the pinnacle of their their theology, the top of their creeds. You could not find a statement that was more important to the Jews because that is what distinguished them from all the other surrounding nations that also worship gods. So James picks this. Why did he do that? Because he's talking to a bunch of Jews. He picked the one thing that they all had said a gazillion times since they were born, the Shema. And he says, guess what? What you hold the deepest as your deepest point of theology, the devil can say it right along with you. But he's not even saved, is he? No. His rebellion has brought him far from Christ. He's making a point. Therefore, it's not really about what you say, is it? That's what James is saying. I mean, our declarations with our mouths, it doesn't mean that that truth possesses us just because we say it. Just because we say something or recite something, it doesn't mean that it's actually in us and owns us, right? I was thinking about this this morning on the way up here. I was listening to sports radio, which isn't ever good on Sunday mornings, by the way. But I was driving up and listening about um, Alabama fans. And I thought, you know what? What if we were at a pep rally or at a game and Rocky Top came on? The band started playing it. Rocky Top, man, that's the anthem of all anthems, isn't it? And everybody's singing and clapping with Rocky Top, and all of a sudden you look to your left, and there's like a a dude that's crimsoned out. He's all Alabama gear, and he's doing Rocky Top right along with you. You would look at him, and you'd think, listen, man, (laughs) you could sing it. You can go on Wikipedia and get the lyrics if you want, but let's just be honest. You're never going to be a vol. You're not a vol. That truth doesn't really get you, you know? 
Rocky Top. Listen, whenever I go downtown or to Gatlinburg, you got these bluegrass bands that play, really good ones. I've never seen a bad one. And they always play, it's funny to watch their song selection. They'll play something that you've never heard of, and then whenever they start to see everybody's attention kind of wane, they'll play like a Johnny Cash song, right? And everybody kind of comes back, because he's cool all of a sudden again. And then they play something else, and then the attention starts to wane a little bit. But man, if it gets desperate, they start playing Rocky Top, man. And it's like everybody comes, and there are people coming out of shops, and it's all Rocky Top. (laughs) I love that song. I hated it when I moved here, but it's got me. Something magical. Okay, I'm going to preach again. Look at 2 Timothy 3 in your Bibles. Turn to 2 Timothy 3. This, this is not going to be on the screen. Um, this proves the point a little bit. It says this. This is Paul talking to his young church planner, this prodigy, this young man. He says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable. It means they cannot be made happy. Slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Man, that is a long list. There aren't any even contractions in that list, just a bunch of commas. That's a long list. And then he says this, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Listen, it's impossible to have a good talk and have it really be a true thing and have no walk at all. I mean, these are folks that have no intention of releasing their embrace on sin and gripping the cross instead. That's that's who would be in one of these groups I believe James is talking to. It's a useless faith, a dead faith. It's a useless faith that belongs to people who say things with their mouth and there's no grace generating or manufacturing good deeds in their life. It's not happening, right? But there's a second group, and I think this is a group that's important for us. These are people who are so familiar with Christianity, either because of the culture they live in or the way they were brought up. They're so familiar with Christianity that they're actually convinced that that familiarity has saved them. It has brought them new life. And listen, this is where we live. This is Knoxville, Tennessee. That's where this group is. We happen to live here. We're thousands of, many thousands of people Many, many thousands of people have grown up in Sunday school classes, coloring the cute coloring sheets, bringing them to mom and dad, have Bibles on the tables in the house, even on their own bedside table, went to a Christian school, played for a football team with a Christian jersey on, went to a church camp with church people on church buses, right? They know their pastor's name. They drive a car with a fish on it with Toby Mac blaring. They show up to church whenever it's Easter Christmas, someone's getting married, a baby's getting baptized, or they didn't sleep over, right? I mean, this is what we have, but there's nothing in them generating anything that would say, I'm a Christian. In a court of law, if they were being prosecuted for being a Christian, they wouldn't be found guilty. They would look at their friends, look at their checkbook, look at their schedule, look at all the things that mark that person and say, this is who they are, and they would come up blank. And we're there. Listen, it's not just me saying this. This is the cold, hard 
truth. These are the numbers. Over 80% of Knoxville says that they love Jesus and are Christians. Over 80%. But only between 16 to 20% of this city is connected to real life-giving community. And I'm actually including the house church movement when I say that. I'm not saying they have to come to something like this. 16 to 20%. You know what that leaves? 60% of people who are giving no deeds or works related to community, but they say it with their mouth. 60%. This group, 60%. Listen, James is a hard but a loving look at this city. It's a good book for us. These people... Some believe that they are Christians because of their past, because of their culture. And they have confused Christian culture with the Christ. They've confused it. And so they are still ruler of their own life, still sovereign king of their own life. They haven't stopped embracing their sin. They haven't stopped protecting their sin. And I used to be one of these people for 10 years I was one of these people. I might have missed six or seven Sundays in ten years of going to church. And I said all the right things. And listen, I had all the right memory verses down. I was the popular kid in the church. They'd let me preach a little bit. The little FCA stuff. Said all the right stuff. Knew all the right people. And listen, I was so far from Christ. I was not even a Christian. I said it with my mouth. I said all the right things with my mouth. I had no deeds. Well, Luke, didn't you do good things? Yeah, but it was all about me. (laughs) It's all about making me look a certain way. It's all about producing glory for myself. I was self-preoccupied. And I wanted to be seen, and I wanted to be God, and I wanted to be ruler, and I wanted to be sovereign. And then one day, it changed. One day, it changed, and my walk started to produce a talk, or my talk started to produce a walk. There started to be deeds, changes. You started to see a change in my life. People, my friends would say it. Man, I I remember my parents and my friends thinking I was in a cult. They thought I was in a cult because I had such a radical change from day to day. I mean, I had so many radical life changes. Broke up with a girl that I'd been dating for such a very, very, very long time, but it wasn't a very good relationship. It wasn't a God-honoring one. I broke up that day. I felt the call of God on my life to preach the gospel. I dropped out of medical school. I did all kinds of things. It's such a drastic big deal that my parents were scared that I was in a cult. I wasn't in a cult. I got saved. God rescued me. And the change was so drastic and radical, it freaked them out. That's because they never saw any change before. Because there wasn't any. There weren't any works and deeds. Listen, anyone that tries to confront this person in this group will do what I did. They will say, you're either judgmental, you're judging me, right? Or you're a fanatic. (laughs) Or you're a fanatic, so I can't take you serious because you're a fanatic. Nobody's up there with you. You're all alone, bro, you know? Those will be the two things. But we have this challenge of living in this region, this beautiful region that God has put on this earth as a band of missionaries to reach out to a people, as a people, as a people on the mend, as a people that are being perfected in God's image, as a people that are growing, we live in this place where we get to reach out and touch these people. Now, you will hear this as you do. And some of you will. Some of you will sit down with people that you feel like might be in one of these two groups. And you might say something like, hey, man, I'm just curious. I mean, I know you grew up in church. 
But I just want to ask you a few questions because I'm concerned about you and I love you, man. You'll hear things like this. Hey, man, I asked God into my life when I was younger. You can't judge me. After all, we all have sins. Even you do. Boy, isn't that the ultimate shutdown statement? Doesn't that just shut us down and lock us down? Because they're right. You do have sins, friends. You're a mess. You're all a mess. I am too. I'm a disaster, rolled up in a mess, covered with another disaster, dripping with more mess. I'm a mess. And they're right. They probably did pray to let Jesus do something in their life. They, prob- they might have done that. But this passage shows us that although God's actions justify us before him, our actions justify us before each other. And that is important. That's what we see. God's action. It's his hand that reaches us. Listen, God did something so radical and something so over the top in the cross. When you think about what he did, it is so radical and over the top. And the thing is, he didn't like recruit our help for it. He did it of his own accord, according to his own counsel, being led by his own will. He did something, and your works didn't have any... If, if anything, your works did, it just hurt the whole thing. Paul says if you take the best of your works and put them up before Jesus, it's just a pile of junk. It's, it's worthless. He did that. That's all him. That's all his strength. He did the heavy lifting. I wasn't even there. We weren't even a part of that. He just blessed us and leveled us with his grace. But that grace is so deep and it's so strong and it's so effective and it's so aggressive and it's so persistent and it's so consistent that it doesn't just save you, it changes you. That grace does not just rescue you, it alters you. It changes you. It starts a revolution that starts evolving over time. And even though you start getting old on the outside and falling apart, On the inside, you're being renewed day by day by day. And it's productive. And people see it. It's a working faith. That's how it works. Okay, Luke, you're scaring me. Luke, you're scaring me because I have sin that I've not been very vigilant with. Right? I mean, I have faith, but I guess I could staple a little bit more work to it. More deeds. I mean... Luke, does this mean that I'm not saved? All of what you're saying? Does it mean that I'm not saved? How can I know? Do I have a useless faith? Where do we draw the line? Right? Listen, I will say this. The gospel makes room for growth. It's a fact. Some people grow faster than others. And some people grow in spurts. Right? So I'm not going to be drawing any lines for you today. I mean, think about it. You look at a plant, you know how it is. You look at a plant, it's a seedling. You walk by another week, you look again, it's a seedling. You come by the third week and it's a bush. And you're thinking in your head, how did that happen? It wasn't growing very fast. And all of a sudden, I've got to prune that thing now. I was just taking training wheels off my son's bike the other day, it feels like. And now he's a post in a basketball league. And I'm thinking, what happened? I've seen Christians that they get radically saved and they're just boom like a rocket. They can't learn enough. They're reading all the time. They're going through all these studies. or They just blow up. And then they hit this point where they just kind of plateau and just barely grow. And then I've seen the opposite. People that they're just, you'd almost confuse them as somebody that's all speaking and no activity. 
no effort. And then out of nowhere, some coin drops. I don't know. Some revelation God gives them, and they blow up and become a monster. They're huge. Call a God on their life. They're planting churches. They love people, starting as much as they can. And you're thinking, wow, where did this come from? We have spurts. We grow differently. That's a truth. That's something that really happens. So listen, if you're growing slower than you want, but you still continue to trust in God, you still release your grip on sin, you repent and you turn back, even if you sin a thousand times, you find yourself really repenting a thousand and one times. Even if you start to see this growth becoming slower and slower, but you maintain trust in the fact that the cross does the work and you keep running back and running back, then that is evidence of a saving faith. That's evidence of a saving faith. So take a deep breath. Right? I mean, we see this in Abraham. This is a crazy, crazy story. James gave it as an example, though, so I'm going to lean on the same example James used. Abraham has a long laundry list of some real big stupid moves. He did some real stupid things, right? We kind of deify these people, but they're not God. They had plenty of mistakes. Abraham's first in that. God gives him a promise. I'm going to give you a son. He stops listening to God, starts listening to his wife instead of the voice of God. And his wife says, I tell you what, let's just shortcut this. It doesn't look like God's actually God after all. Why don't you have a son through my servant, right? And if you're thinking in your mind, yeah, but Luke, I think that was okay back then. No, it wasn't. It's not any better back then than it is now. That wouldn't be cool today if you heard that. Well, we couldn't have a baby, so my husband slept with my best friend. You'd be like, what? That just happened? That's crazy. You don't do that. You didn't do it back then either. That was not a cool thing. His wife was attractive. They're meandering around the wilderness in the desert. He says to himself, these kings are going to start looking at my wife and seeing how beautiful she is. And they're going to drag her into their harem. And all that that means. So, hey, let's pretend that we're brother and sister. Because if, if they find out that we're married, they're going to kill me. But if I'm your brother, I'm going to make out like a bandit. They're going to give me sheeps and servants and gold and all kinds of stuff. What do you call that? I mean, for lack of a better word, he's pimping his wife. That is what that is. God saves it, of course. But you know what makes that even worse? He did it again. He did that twice. He did it once with Pharaoh. He did it once with Abimelech. Might I suggest that is not good deeds or good works, right? What a mess. What a mess. What a Mari Povich, Ricky Lake-looking mess. That's something that you see the first 30 seconds. You're like, what? You turn the channel. That is what, that was Abraham, the father of faith to the Jews. This is what it says in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. And then there it is, that verse again. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. James picked the one guy that the Jews put on a pedestal. He didn't just pick on the Shema. He took Abraham, put him on a pedestal and used him as an example. Now this is the thing. Abraham was rescued. I guess you could say born again back in chapter 15. 
He believed upon God's promises. God imputed righteousness to him. That's what happens to us when we become Christians. It's just being saying that he became a Christian, I guess, before the Christ. That's why Abraham will be in heaven when you see him. All right. So that happened in chapter 15. But this thing on the hill with Isaac, that's chapter 22. All that sin I just described, that nasty jank, was in between the two. In between the two. I might suggest that he wasn't always growing like gangbusters the whole time he was saved. I might suggest that. James is saying this. Hey, listen, guys. Abraham revealed before everybody that his faith was real because of what he did with his son on that hill. He showed it. He proved it. He revealed it. He justified it before everybody. I mean, no way, James is saying, Abraham got from A to B without grace working in there, kicking stuff around, and producing something. No way that doesn't happen. He grew in God, and it was justified and revealed and proven by what he did on the hill with his loved son. That's what he's saying. What he was not saying, what he was not saying is this. Look at the cool things James did. Then he became a Christian. Now you go do cool things so you could become a Christian. If you get the order of those mixed up and put 22 before 15, that's what you're going to walk away with, which is a system of legalism, right? So some of you right now, I am sure, are asking yourself, why do I care about all of this? Why do I care about this message, this passage? I will say this. It is not as much about who is in and who is out as much as it is when grace gets in you, it changes you. When grace gets in your gut, it changes you. That's really the focus of this message. I mean, it's about the Holy Spirit coming in and taking you as an imperfect person and altering you that you become less imperfect as you grow, as you age, as you get closer to Christ. By His grace. We see here, Abraham was a big mess. Rahab was a recovering prostitute. And yet there was this evolutionary change that everyone was witnessing. And this happened because God did something in their heart. He kissed them with his grace. And it's so strong, they were compelled to change. It just changes us. I mean, originally, they had no choice but to sin. Before Christ, I had no choice but to sin. I could try really hard not to, but i just figure out another way to do it. My, sh- my, it, my sin would change shape a little bit, and it would always be there. It'd be like whack-a-mole. I ju- I'm going to fix that. I don't want to do that anymore. Whoop, here comes another thing over here. I come over here and whack that mold. Whoop, another one comes over here. We just keep sinning in different ways. We can't change. We can't grow away from sin without God's grace. We just end up looking funny and sinning differently. And James is speaking to this. So this is why this is important for you to know. If you're a part of God's people on the mend... If you're a part of the children that he owns, as we just read on the screen, if that's you, you need to know that you're changing. Sounds like an obvious statement to say. You're changing. You're changing not because you're smart. You're not changing because you're strong. You're changing because grace is strong. You're changing because grace is persistent. And God's love God's love is very, very, very consistent. It's very aggressive with you. That's why you're changing. It's aggressive. And he didn't just save you. Grace doesn't come to just save you. It comes to change you. Why am I saying this, as obvious as it seems? Because some of you, I think, are feeling like you're not changing very much. And you're discouraged. And you're wondering why that's the case. 
you're wondering, why can't I seem to get over this sin? Why is it, Luke, that I cannot get past this stronghold over my life? Right? And you might even be wondering, maybe this means that I'm not a Christian. Okay? So, I know, listen, I have to be careful here. I have a dear friend that's like this. He's always scared that he's not a Christian. And he just gets saved over and over and over and over and over again because there's always sin waiting for him. Right? Something he really struggles with. Can I just say this? Your desire to change for God's glory and not your own, that's a gift from you, from God. He only gives that gift to people he calls friend. He only gives that gift to people who are true Christians. That's how that works. He gives that gift to people, that gift of repentance. Whenever you hear the word repentance in the Bible, that's actually a gift from God. We're not smart enough to go, oh my gosh, my sin, I'm so sorry, God. That doesn't come unless God actually does it in you. That's a part of his grace. So if you start to even think in your mind, if you even see a sin and recognize it as sin, if you ever see a sin and go, I want to be done with that, not for my glory, but because I don't image the cross, I don't image the gospel, if that's you, that is a sign of growth. That is a sign of growth. Just like a, a shop owner looking at his books and seeing all of the, the numbers in the wrong place and going, oh my gosh, we need to fix our books. We're losing money. Even though they haven't saved any money yet, just that revelation is growth. It's a step in the good direction. It's the same thing. Maybe you could be changing faster. Maybe you should be changing faster. Maybe you should get it out of cruise control and actually look like the cross. Maybe you should do that. Maybe you should image Jesus for sure. I'm not saying that you don't. But isn't this what it means to be an imperfect person, a jagged person in a jagged landscape with sin coming at us at all different directions from inside our heart, from outside of us? Isn't that what it means is to grow through those things? James helps us here. You know, I think there's also a group in here that maybe understands that they don't have any, and this is what I'm finishing with, by the way, that they understand that I don't have any works, and maybe I just grew up a, what I was describing as a cultural Christian. My dad, my grandpa, my great-grandpa, the block I lived in, the family I've always had, the school I went to, the church I grew up in, Maybe, maybe that resonates with you. And you always grew up in a Christian environment. Always Bible studies in the home. Always books on my shelf. Half of them I'd read like chapter one and not read anymore. If all that happens and you have no works, no deeds, nothing in your heart except getting your kingdom in order. Getting your, maintaining your own rulership. Driving your own bus. However you want to say it. If that's where you find yourself, I know exactly where you're at. I was there for a long time, over a decade. I was there in that place. My one appeal to you, my one appeal to you is to get your life straight with God now. Answer the call of his grace. He's offering it to you. He wants to reconcile himself with you. You know, he called Abraham a friend. That sounds like a weird, goofy, phony statement. Hey, friend, you know, Abraham, you're my friend. But you have to understand, before we're friends, we were enemies. It's not so goofy anymore. The word reconciliation is different from forgiveness. Forgiveness is you sinned against me. We're buds, but that was pretty cheesy what you did. But hey, I forgive you because Jesus forgave me and I did something a little cheesier to him, right? That's forgiveness. That's good functional forgiveness. Reconciliation is we hate each other. We never were friends, probably never will be friends. 
We're aggressive against each other. We have war against each other. Reconciliation is the one that has been damaged to say to the aggressor, I want to reconcile with you. I want to make things right. Let's make enemies friends. That's what the cross does. That's why he called Abraham friend. Because that was a product of good, beautiful reconciliation. And I'm telling you today, if you find yourself in a place where you've not been reconciled with God, then you do find yourself as an enemy still. Right? You find yourself as an And I, I don't say that with a light heart. This isn't a light message, you can tell. I like to joke around and mess around as much as anybody. This is a heavy message. All right? 